1: Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: Hello, and welcome to episode 1012 of the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening A big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show and, of course, we love hearing from you. The librarian told me he knows some of you haven't yet picked up our first written anthology, 13 Wicked Tales, which is available on Amazon in print and Kindle. He also wanted me to remind you that all of his books are hungry for your fear. For less than the cost of a cup of coffee per story, you can feed a book your fear And keep it cold and wicked. Grab your copy at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. It's packed with great tales by some of your favorite authors from the show, including today's author, Aaron Vleck. The book also features beautiful cover art and illustrations by Jeanette Andromeda. It's a fantastic collection, and we know you'll want a copy for your own Wicked Library. Again, get yours now at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. As always, before we get started today, a big thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. We've had several new supporters sign up on Patreon and on our website, and we all deeply thank you. Without you, this show would not be possible. On behalf of our authors and everyone else involved in making the show, a sincere thank you for your support of this show and of independent horror fiction. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that now at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Today's episode features a dark tale by longtime T.W.L. alum and author of our ongoing series, The Private Collector, Aaron Vleck. Today's story, The Lights Beneath the Sea, is a Jeffrey Sykes Vermilion tale, and also features elements from The Summer of the Amazing Mr. Fig. You can find the previous appearances of Vermilion and Mr. Fig in episodes 805, 900, and 905. Today's storyteller is our friend and always brilliant voice actor David Alt. Accompanied by a custom score, written by our resident composer, Nico Viteze, of We Talk of Dreams. Please, if you enjoy the story, find Erin's work and buy it. It keeps her making more. You can learn more about Erin and find links to her other work on her bio page at thewickedlibrary.com. If you're a fan of The Private Collector, Season 2 episodes are airing monthly for our Private Collector-level supporters on Patreon and at our website. Season 2 will return for free listeners later this fall. Now... Let's get wicked.
1: Ah, so you've come in search of a story, have you? Well, you've come to the right place. My private collection of dark tomes are hungry for your fear, filled with stories that are sure to terrify, disturb, and delight. Be warned, though, these tales are not for sensitive listeners you're going to hear things that will upset and quite possibly offend. Ah, here's a good one. Follow me now and we'll enjoy this tale together. It's story time at the Wicked Library.
2: <laughs> I had just settled into my house at Harrowood Cliff for the summer and only been in residence for a week when the first inkling of mischief came to my attention. Norton, my manservant of many years, had joined me to open the house and ready the place for the onslaught of family and friends that descended upon my shores throughout the summer months. I relished the days of solitude to walk the sea-cliff at eventide and savour a brandy by the fire which, despite the season, was always a welcome conclusion to the day. Norton and a couple of local women worked tirelessly to give the house a thorough cleaning and ordered in the first barrage of what was needed for the larder as well as other necessities wine of a fine quality and goodly variety, port of commendable local vintage, a complement of the usual spirits and aperitifs and other more obscure refreshments deemed necessary by certain guests. My own brandy, of course, was sent up from town." The only other from the usual set on hand was my nephew Randolph, a fine lad soon to go up to Harvard to follow in his father's, uh, my brother Edward's, footsteps and become a medical man. These last two years he'd joined me in my early arrival, enjoying, as he did, the free run of my vast library and the top-floor suite he'd taken for himself. We sat before the fire each night after my cliffside constitutional for a brandy or two, and the conversations we shared deep into the night. I often chided, Edward, that twin brothers such as he and I could not be more dissimilar, and that Randolph was more my own son than his, embracing as he did with such gusto my far-flung interests and singular obsessions, rather than those of his stolid and worldly patriarch. I wondered which of the medical disciplines the boy would undertake... And imagined they'd be highly experimental in nature with a particular emphasis on the mysterious machinations of the human mind, or rather the aberrant or singular human mind. As I say, I'd only been in residence for a few days when the tiresome business started up, heralded by the disappearance of my binoculars and Randolph turning up later than expected for breakfast one morning. The boy had soon become furtive, keeping more and more to himself as the days progressed towards the arrival of family and friends, including the Honourable Madeline Ainsley Scott, Randolph's fiancée. When he rudely informed Norton that he would dine alone in his rooms precisely at 7.30, I finally climbed to his solitary area atop the house to have stern words with him. To my surprise, the boy appeared to be dreadfully exhausted, disheveled, and unshaved, as though he hadn't slept in a week. A number of my precious books lay scattered about the suite as though he'd devoured everything deemed of value therein, and flung them away only to dive greedily into the next. All I could do was look on in disgust at the sight. Finally, sensing my presence, Randolph leapt toward me, and I stumbled backward, having no idea if he intended to attack me or what the blazes had come over him. Grabbing the lapels of my coat with his claw-like hands and breathing heavily into my face, a crazed and desperate look in his eyes, he demanded that I call the others and forbid them to come here. He informed me that he'd broken off with Madeline, telling her to resume her life and to seek a future elsewhere and forget about him. This, in a whimpering tone, was followed in sharp contrast by his angry command that I get out and return only at my peril. The situation became somewhat clear as my eyes scanned the eldritch tomes he had secreted up to his private apartment, volumes such as Franklin's Mysterioso Singularium, Volumes 9 through 12, Haggerty's Distasteful In the Bowels of Wonder, Ibn al-Warith's Al-Kitab al-Ghul, as well as late considerations of the secret meditations of Al-Hazrad, translated from the Greek by the questionable Sylvanius Gregorius V, who claimed to be the son and heir of the mad Arab himself, and a badly worn edition of Miskatonic's own Death Cults of Late Antiquity, Antarctica, volume 4, numbers 2 to 5, by the now completely shamed and discredited E. F. Boerman, I was stunned to see new and novel medical applications for blood and viscera by the apostate Michaelius Vostramus III. For what reason that particular volume made its way to the boy's lair I shuddered to speculate, while Foraging the Outlands of Dream, a folio by J.L.G. Parkinson, considered by many in certain circles to be the nom de plume of Lovecraft himself made altogether too much sense under the circumstances. This latter was not for the inexperienced reader, and I regretted Randolph's having absconded with it. But what was done was done. The boy had already read and returned Cushing's The Secret Celebrant in four volumes, and in Vormish Manuscript with extensive notes by the author, and copious rather suggestive illustrations by one A. Crowley, whose identity needs no further speculation. Lastly, the scandalous Liber Paradisio Nox Reconcilio, compiled and translated with heavy commentary by the defrocked prelate, Frate Jesu et Jehanum, topped off the boy's syllabus, and I wondered how this particularly reprehensible piece of heresy had been removed from its locked and hidden place of confinement. I also discovered on the pile The Meditations of a Disquieted Mind by Anonymous, although I was completely unfamiliar with this last tome. I telephoned my brother, advising him to hold back the arrival of guests due to some vague pestiferous infestation or other, but gave no word of his son's troubling turn, which now included locking himself in his rooms and refusing all meals that were not left outside his door. The unmistakable sound of fevered activity within that locked chamber and loud muttering and invocations late into the night disturbed the peace of the upper floors of the house and could not be tolerated. It had been two full days since I'd laid eyes on my nephew. The last time I'd ventured up to his rooms, the door to Randolph's room slammed shut at my approach, and the muffled sounds of someone voraciously savaging a meal within, it made me want to retch. I pounded on the boy's door, but naturally received no reply. It was then that I decided to bag two birds with a boulder, and invite my old friend Geoffrey Sykes Vermillion up for the summer, to help me sort out this business and give him a chance to enjoy the seaside." Now Vermilion was my oldest friend and mentor of many years in the study of the outre sciences and obscure theoretical philosophies. Our work together centered upon how the proper intersection of these two conjoined within the well-trained and conditioned mind could produce an array of desired results that might be reproduced, studied, verified, and then codified for further study and research by those engaged in similar inquiries. Crowley himself had done some preliminary work in this, landing eventually upon his concept of the method of science, the aim of religion. It was, I suppose, what lesser minds have called the occult, or indeed magic, but which in bygone times and greater antiquity was considered religion itself, and really the fullness of knowledge. Yes, Vermilion was a dear friend, as trusted and true as anyone could wish, and yet, though I longed for his arrival, it was not without a certain undeniable trepidation as well. Despite Vermilion's unblemished character and my own somewhat prodigious, if I might be clear, experience with the matters found within the volumes of my library, my old friend's arrival was always accompanied by such startling revelations in thought and experience and the presence of such fantastical beings as I had yet to familiarize myself with, that I was perpetually ill at ease in his good company. I was, it seemed, always waiting for something unnameable to descend upon us, and I was never disappointed. As a mentor, Familiar never allowed his protégé to become complacent in his attainments. I always sensed, uh, no, I knew with complete certainty that The million dwelt perpetually beyond reach even of myself, always kept the most troubling secrets and discoveries to himself, and would forever shove me stumbling headlong through the doors of the unnatural, the unreal, and the fantastical. So it was with all this, the excitement of the schoolboy on Christmas morn, and the same lad bound for the headmaster's room for a stout caning, that I picked up the phone and invoked Jeffrey Sykes Vermilion to join me at his earliest convenience. My heart leapt and sank in equal measure when I heard that deep, melodious voice cheerfully assure me that he'd arrive on the first train that very afternoon and I should send the car around to collect him and his bags. After Vermilion had settled in, we shared a brandy before the fire after supper, and I filled my old friend in on Randolph's startling turn in so short a time. He requested the complete list of the books found within the boy's rooms and a thorough account of his daily activities, such few as I was still privy to. I could see the gears turning in those dark eyes as they locked on the flames, so I left him alone with his thoughts until he glanced up and cleared his throat. Yes, the best course of action right now is to watch for signs of any nocturnal wanderings. If he's quiet tonight, then our first order of business tomorrow is to gain entry to that room. I'll have a look around and get the feel of the place and a read on your nephew. With that, he retired to his rooms to consult whatever divinatory methods he had brought with him. Then we regrouped half past midnight in the hall outside Randolph's rooms and waited. Norton had been on the lookout, and so far my nephew had not left the house all evening, and the shuffling sounds from inside the chamber confirmed this. Little did I know as we sat on watch, I nearly dozing at times while Vermilion remained alert, employing some technique gleaned from the Himalayan masters, what awaited us in the early hours of the morning.' A muffled scream, followed by the crash of furniture splintering, had Vermilion and I on our feet at Randolph's door. It was locked, of course, but we made quick work of it and soon commanded a view of the room. Vermilion raced to the crumpled form in the far corner while I tried to make sense of what lay before me. Coiled about the room was a work of demoniac construction. The entrance to the thing was only inches from my face, and I had only to stoop slightly if I wished to enter the blasted thing. It was a curving and oddly angled tunnel of damned unorthodox design. As it lay across the floor through the room, it became smaller and smaller, coiling toward its final destination. The hideous contraption disappeared completely into the floor, aimed at God knows what infernal destination. It was all of a yellowish parchment color, translucent and covered with blurred and smeared scribblings, sigils, and indecipherable designs. I reached out and drew my finger across the outer wall of the tunnel. It was sheer and crinkly to the touch, like a discarded snakeskin, and trembled slightly beneath my fingertips. I looked closer at the images fading into nothingness over the surface of the thing and almost exploded in rage, then glanced in horror at the prone figure Vermilion was attending to. In a daze I started to enter the structure to get a closer look at its interior, when Vermilion hissed and sharply signalled for me to get away from the thing, which I did, of course, coming to my senses just in time. The tunnel had been fashioned from the torn pages of my books, the torn, chewed, digested, and then regurgitated pages of my precious books, commingled with the juices of my nephew's stomach, making a sort of nest or pupa-gestation sack. "'Gerald, get away from that damned thing and help me, for God's sake, man!' Vermillion yelled, and I was instantly beside him, staring into the dazed and bleary-eyed gaze of my nephew. "'Did you see her?' Randolph managed to gasp from between his parched and swollen lips. "'See who, boy? There's no one here!' I said, glancing about the room just to be sure. "'What the devil are you playing at here?' I bellowed, and Vermilion silenced me with a sharp glance. "'Did you see her?' Randolph cried again, gathering his strength and trying to sit up, but Vermilion eased him back down to the floor. "'Did you see her?' "'See who, damn it, there's no one here,' I cried in anger. "'Did you see her?' he resumed. "'Did you see her?' The lights beneath the sea, did you see her? The lights beneath the sea, the lights beneath the sea, did, did you see her? He muttered, grinning like a drunken fool and shoving Vermilion out of the way. The boy lunged towards the window facing the sea and put my missing binoculars to his eyes. Vermilion was on his feet and drew a syringe from his bag and administered it to Randolph, who slid immediately to the floor with a groan. We lifted the boy into his bed, and then I went to the window to see if, in fact, there was any sense to the boy's ramblings. What I saw gave me a real turn. Vermilion, what do you make of this?' I asked as my friend joined me at the window and took up my binoculars. There were, indeed, faint lights beneath the surface of the ocean, several of them, moving about and then disappearing, only to appear again and then finally disappearing completely." "'We do have a sort of phosphorescent plankton hereabouts in certain years,' I continued before he could answer. "'But I'll be damned if it's anything like this. "'The plankton bloom is more of a solid blush that fades into the tides and can be seen. "'No, oh, this is nothing I have ever seen here before. "'What do you make of it, familian I ventured. "'I've seen something very like it, yes, very like it, "'but I have to do some scouting about on my own for a bit.' Watch the boy and see that he neither comes to any harm nor enters that blasted warren. If he awakens and tries to enter the thing, call for Norton and a few feet of good sturdy rope and lash the bugger to his bed, he ordered. And you, Vermillion said, stabbing his finger toward me, you stay out of that thing as well. When I return tomorrow, we'll destroy it and burn its remains. And then he was gone. From Vermillion's Field Notes, May 13th, 1947. Location, Harrowwood Cliff, the home of my old friend and student Gerald Marshall. Subject, Randolph Marshall, Gerald's nephew. I was called to my friend's home to look into some strange doings involving the boy aged 17 years, by all accounts in excellent health and constitution and due shortly to begin preliminary studies in medicine at Harvard. The boy had recently exhibited a fondness for Gerald's studies in the occult sciences and anthropological law, having begun to avail himself of Gerald's extensive library. The boy hasn't undertaken what might be called laboratory investigations of these matters until quite recently and with startling and troubling results. He hadn't sought Gerald's guidance in these operations, having clearly responded to third-party heralds from the nether worlds, or to the unbridled ravings of his own disordered mind. Further investigation will clarify matters. After making the discoveries of this afternoon, detailed extensively elsewhere in my papers, I left the boy sedated in Gerald's charge and proceeded on to an abandoned house on the cliff near my friend's seaside estate. My reasons for this were twofold: the police account that morning of a break-in the night before at that ruined mansion, and additional volumes I had seen in the boys' rooms. A book of local law by Vleck entitled "The Summer of the Amazing Mr. Fig" is a brief but detailed account from nearly a hundred years earlier of a curious pair of inhabitants of this coastal region, an enigmatic and seldom-seen wheelchair-bound Mr. Fig and his tall, austere female companion. This was followed many years later by the disappearance of an old woman, Clara Overton, who had befriended the mysterious Mr. Fig one summer during her girlhood. At that time, Clara's parents' grand house had been a popular summer destination with the swell set, but was now long abandoned, boarded up, and ransacked of anything of value it might have contained in so long a period of disuse. The house lay within sight of Gerald's own on the bluff above the sea. Vleck's account, long considered by sober, unimaginative readers to be a work of second-rate fiction, was not without unmistakable similarities to certain details of Lovecraft's own exploits. Many aficionados of the occult arts, myself among them, know these accounts to be nothing but the unvarnished truth regarding certain dwellers of the deeper trenches of the sea. Whether natural or otherwise, dwellers of any natural or unnatural sea remains unconfirmed, but for hearsay among mainstream scholarship. Footnotes here for interested readers who may follow. 1. Batrachians 2. Deep Ones 3. Innsmouth Two other books, tattered paperbacks of the cheapest sort, lay nearby, Ashton Drake's preposterous The Cults of the Vampire Worm, and its dreadfully predictable sequel of little imagination The Cocoons of the Vampire Worm. I shudder to think that perhaps one day the reader of such drivel can look forward to The Brides of the Vampire Worm or some such idiocy ad infinitum. One can only pray for Drake's untimely demise." Clearly the young fool Randolph had taken these laughable works of pulp fiction for truth. Had he not been my old friend's nephew and ensconced within his home, I'd have said he got just what he deserved and left him to his fate. Books and binoculars had lain in a window that looked out squarely on the sea. I left them so I could consider what to do next. Gerald hadn't even seemed to notice my swift departure, but I heard the door lock sharply behind me. I then made my way to the abandoned Overton place, where I found the expected signs of youthful break-ins, discarded refuse, broken bottles, and the like. There was an unmistakable air to the place, that of night mists and the growing things of the deep, but this was a warm, dry night, and no mists disturbed the calm sea air. There was also something of far greater interest, a trail of wet footprints. As I knelt to examine them more closely, I saw that I was distracted then from my detection of clues by a shuffling sound and the whimper of someone or something in pain or great distress. I shone my torch around the room and saw huddled in the corner an old woman, a very old woman, who, when my light fell upon her, stood up and stared at me, shivering in her nakedness her huge, black, and blinking eyes locked on mine in stark terror and confusion. I saw then the webbed feet that proved the source of the prints I had seen across the dusty floor, along with the webbed hands, the opalescent greenish skin, and the broad, wide-lipped mouth undulating with unfathomable utterances. The lithe figure trailed yards of matted hair around her trembling body, the seaweed and shells tangled within her tresses by chance or placed there for vanity I could not tell. My suspicions upon seeing those lights out at sea were confirmed, I was in the presence of a deep one. I made no threatening gesture toward the creature and a moment later she was gone. I watched as she ran to the cliff and leapt over hoping it was into the welcoming embrace of the sea, and not certain death upon the rocks below to which she plunged. I didn't see how Randolph figured into this business. The hideous construction in his room, and the disparity of titles the boy had consumed, made no immediate logical sense when faced with the creature I knew to be Clara Overton, or what remained of her after so many years in the bosom of a very different kindred than the Overton clan but on the morrow we would see, and sense would be made of all. It seemed like forever before Vermilion climbed the stairs and joined me in Randolph's rooms where the boy was still out cold in a stupor. Norton soon joined us with news that breakfast was laid on the sideboard, along with a great deal of strong hot coffee, and we decamped to that welcome repast. Over breakfast, Vermilion shared with me his findings and the fantastical appearance of Clara Overton, but he wasn't yet certain as to the exact nature of Randolph's predicament. First off, it's that cacophony of books and manuscripts in the boy's room. Vermilion lifted his cup to his lips and then set it down again, If he was just digging into a broad study of related works, perhaps, but there was too much evidence of frenzied consumption of the materials, literally and figuratively. That blasted construction, I must say, my old friend, that was the work of nothing but sheer lunacy, the fantasies of Drake's worm cults and other nonsense. I'm afraid there's more of mad than magic to that business. The other works are not quite so harmless, and had you in your possession a copy of Al-Hazrad's masterpiece, I would have been surprised not to find that somewhere in the pile. But there is nothing touching specifically upon the Deep Ones besides the solitary Mr. Fig narrative. I sat upright here, startled and none too sure where Vermilion was heading. Surely you can't mean... I ventured, and he nodded slowly. No... Certainly not this far north, but it's too cold in these waters, surely, for... for them? Oh yes, here and now. I saw her, it was indeed Clara Overton, and there was no mistaking the transformation she'd undergone. Her skin, the distinctive facial features, the webbing in the hands and feet, the undulations and inarticulate cries, it was she. And she has become almost wholly Batrachian, a deep one, and I'd say willingly if Vleck's accounts are to be believed and they are held in high regard among the scholars of Miskatonic. Even among Innsmouth's ancient lines and newer inhabitants the Vleck account is considered authoritative, but I fear that Clara's arrival may have precipitated the boy's mental collapse, and that it wasn't his intent to invoke her but rather to respond to her cries in the night in some way that might lure her into his grasp." I see. I said, looking back on the week and few days since our arrival, fearing more for Randolph's sanity than his safety. I'll be damned if I heard a thing, but my rooms are in the back of the house. So what is our next move? Today, we destroy that folly in Randolph's room and thoroughly cleanse and banish the interior, keeping the boy secluded elsewhere in the house while we're about it. After that, I can get to the bottom of this, Clara was clearly confused, terrified. I wager she had no idea why she had returned to her former home and why she ran off into the night as though pursued. It was a damn sad sight to behold Gerald, damn sad. She must not be allowed to suffer like this to keep returning to land. Tonight I'll hold watch down on the beach to make sure, if she does rise from the sea, she is not allowed to climb up to that ruined house. Beyond that, all I can do is try to chase her back into the sea. If she is allowed to remain on land, she will surely die within a fortnight. I believe she is in the final stages of her transformation. And so this was accomplished. Amidst a binding circle, Vermilion and I dismantled the pestilence in my nephew's quarters. All the while, I was loath to even think of how I would explain this business to my brother Edward. Although a young man, Randolph was entrusted to my care, and they were my books that had seduced his youthful fancies and perhaps toppled an undetected frailty of mind. Vermilion loaded the ghastly mess into a sack he'd prepared for the purpose, complete with binding compounds and dampening formulae to contain the rot. Though the thing was the fruit of perhaps two addled minds, Drake's abysmal fantasies and my nephew's delusional experimentation Vermilion and I knew all too well that such fruit could spread its diseased seed and further contaminate an already troubled world. Lastly, we burned the thing itself along with what remained of my books in a pyre, whose shooting blue sparks and tongues of flame seemed to rip open the very heavens above our heads. The blasted boy! If he had only come to me, we could have delved into these matters in a responsible way, as safely as we could and with desired results." that my nephew had not consulted me or sought my guidance spoke poorly of his mental state as Vermilion had surmised. A glorious mess it was indeed. After seeing to the banishing of that fiendish tunnel to which my books were sacrificed, we ritually cleansed the room and the halls outside it, cleaned ourselves, and then sat down to a huge lunch in a bottle of my best port, It was going to be the devil of a night, I just knew it, and I wanted to be fortified for whatever onslaught awaited us. I spent the remainder of the day pacing anxiously and checking on the boy to make sure Norton never left his side. Randolph had awakened more than once, began his delirious mutterings about her and lights beneath the sea, struggling violently to gain his freedom and then falling back into his stupor. On Vermilion's orders, during one of these bouts, he was administered a draft of laudanum mixed with a spot of brandy, and he settled back into whatever dreamland would have him. This respite was broken only by intermittent tearful whimpers of a single name, Clara. At sunset, I sat down to a cold supper while Vermilion, armed with sandwiches, a thermos of coffee, and a camp chair, struck off for the beach to set up his vigil. Certain that the Batrachian Clara Overton would rise from the sea to continue her troubled search for her unraveling memory and the last known safe harbor she knew upon dry land. Vermillion's Field Notes. I began my vigil at precisely 8 p.m., just as a shard of moon rose and shone its feeble light across the ghostly sands of the beach and the placid waters beyond. Only a light rustling of the waves breaking gently on the shore, and the sounds of foghorns kept me company, but I knew this calm was not to last. What I had learned of the Deep Ones and their lifespan was this. There were natural-born Batrachians, those spawned within the depths by Batrachian parents, never knowing life on dry land except for furtive grasps as they dared in commerce with their land-dwelling kinsmen in places such as Innsmouth and the coastal regions of the New England seaboard and other places. These remained forever alien to the ways of ordinary folk. The other branch of the family, those who began life fully human, were transformed through some willingness on their part and took to the depths in the company of the Deep Ones. If Vleck's account was to be believed, and I was firmly convinced that it was, Clara Overton became fascinated by the enigmatic Batrachian Mr. Fig, himself on in years and in the advanced stages of his final transformation. Living on land as he did, he too must have at one time been fully human. Not long after the accounts of the book, he must have sallied forth beneath the waves and renounced forever the ways of humanity. But before his final departure he had clearly taken young Clara, obviously the willing if unwitting party to the folly, upon a moonlight swim. Of course that was enough to enchant the girl's soul and ensource all the very fabric of her physical being. Though it would take many, many years to fulfil, Mr. Fig had ensured that Clara Overton's destiny was to mirror his own. Vermilion and I were convinced the sortie upon Randolph's haggard sanity would coincide with the dramatic finale of Clara Overton's final night. I knew the boy had never ventured down to the seashore itself, a lengthy and treacherous climb even for the most resolute swimmer to take the waters or bake their hides upon the sands. None of this was in Randolph's pale and pampered nature, and it was never suspected that he harboured a hale and hearty outdoorsman beneath his tweeds. I sat before the fire awaiting Vermillion's return when I heard Norton shout in rage from the landing and heavy, shambling footsteps barreling down the staircase. I was out of my chair and charging towards the front hall when the door banged open accompanied by the sound of breaking glass. I went out onto the flagstones and saw Randolph running towards the headlands where he paced feverishly back and forth. Norton joined me, the makings of a real shiner already blooming on his right eye and we raced after the young fool. Randolph reached the edge of the cliff and started down the wooden staircase that led to the beach, Norton and I following as quickly as we could. There was movement in the darkness, and I heard Vermilion's sharp voice command someone to stand back. I don't know if I'm grateful for the faint glow of the moon that cast the scene before me in pale relief, or if I may use its meagre light to assure myself I didn't see what I surely saw, only Vermilion could verify what my eyes beheld as he yelled for me to stand back as well. Vermillion's Field Notes We were fighting on two fronts, one within the walls of my old friend's house for Randolph's sanity, or what could be salvaged of it, and the other down here upon the shore for the creature that Clara Overton had become. I remained unconvinced that the boy had exerted any real magical influence over the Deep Ones and felt sure his current condition rose in response to Ashton Drake's unhinged ramblings and his own imaginings. The untimely nearness of such a creature as Clara and her moonlight song and pitiful cries had awakened something sickly that lay dormant within the boy's deeper nature. The action burst into play all at once as Clara's lithe form emerged from the shallows and staggered across the sand. I waited to see where she was headed and was angered to see the blasted Randolph running toward her, stumbling over his own feet, her name mindlessly erupting again and again from his lips. Then I saw Gerald appear and stop short before entering the circle of moonlight that surrounded Clara, Randolph, and myself. I gestured for Gerald to stand back and he complied. I moved quickly to intervene and stop Randolph from in any way accosting the trembling Clara. I smiled and nodded to her, and without hesitation she ran into my embrace. She clung to me, shivering in terror, her huge black eyes locked on mine, her webbed fingers embedded in the heavy cotton of my quilted coat. Clara glared at Randolph, whom she clearly didn't know and wanted no dealings with. The boy lunged toward us, but Gerald was instantly on the move. He and Norton tackled him to the ground, holding him prone as he struggled to regain his feet. Then the brawny Norton hoisted the boy over his shoulder and carried him away accompanied by Gerald. All the while Randolph kept babbling on about lights beneath the sea and the name of Clara, Clara. I released Clara from my arms and she stared up at me unblinking, unknowing, as mindless as a mooncalf. The moment was critical and I breathed a sigh of relief when I saw two tall Batrachians coming out of the water, and making their way up the beach where they stopped before reaching us. I raised a hand in the universal greeting, palm out, and was delighted when one of them returned the same, though they remained where they stood. I turned Clara toward the two, and they released their haunting, angelosus song upon the night breeze, and I shuddered. Clara turned and looked at me again, a flicker of something that might have been recognition, before she turned and ran to the two deep ones. The three stood for a moment, and then the taller of the two, the one who had returned my hail, picked Clara up in his arms, and the three of them retreated slowly into the sea, which was now alive with a symphony of pale dancing lights. Then they were gone. The real struggle began once Randolph was back in the house and safely abed in another room than the one we had cleansed. We wanted nothing to remind him of anything of that business, and the room was devoid of reading and writing materials, even though it would be many days before the extent of the damage to Randolph's mind was known. Vermilion induced a coma in the boy using his famous concoction of laudanum and brandy, reduced with certain Himalayan herbs in just the right proportion to bring a deep untroubled sleep without calling up the worlds of dream, that have turned many a casual user into a raving fiend. Randolph was burning up with fever, but I trusted Vermilion in all things medicinal, as his training was broader and more extensive than to be expected of half a dozen men, but that was Geoffrey Sykes Vermilion. After a week I called my brother Edward to advise him of the situation and have him call off all festivities for the summer. He came immediately, saw that his son was gravely ill, and deferred to Vermilion, whom he trusted, as did I. Vermilion advised the boy to be taken to the Vermilion Institute, a private hospital bearing his name that boasts the latest traditional treatments for the ailing body and mind, as well as lesser-known but remarkable disciplines that it was hoped would bring Randolph back to his senses. I held myself wholly responsible. I had no idea, indeed I had not bothered to look so deeply into Randolph's fascination with my work, to recognize an obsession, a transference onto myself and my world, the excitement and familial care and attention the boy had never received from his own stoic and disciplinarian father. I was grateful, however, that my nephew would receive the best care possible in the world, and that Vermillion and I would see to him personally and at close regard. Beyond that, it was a matter for time and good fortune to mete out the boy's fate, as those two goddesses saw fit in their mercy upon the ill considered follies of men, young or old. Postscript from Vermilion's Field Notes I saw to Randolph's secure placement at the institute that bears my name, knowing if recovery was possible, it would be accomplished there and nowhere else. It's not wise, and I have always harped on about this, and must surely seem the unimaginative prig for maintaining this position, but it is without any possible efficacy, and very dangerous to oneself, to one's associates, indeed to one's physical environs, to blunder unprepared into the lands of dream or the occult without suitable preparations. Indeed, there are natural portals, gates, and guardians set upon those lands that keep the unwitting, the unprepared and the unwise out. But perchance from time to time the fool slips through unawares, then he is on his own and at his very great peril. Randolph's fate in this matter is ultimately his own and is of no concern of mine beyond providing the best care I can for the sake of my old friend. My concern and hope was for Clara Overton, or whatever name she was known by to her kin among the Deep Ones, Clara's human life extended through Batrachian biology had come to its natural end, and she suffered the crippling frailty and the sad cruelty of dementia that robs so many of whatever natural dignity they possess. My study into Batrachian life was not great, but I did understand the life cycle of such creatures who begin their life upon dry land and then take up a very different sort of life beneath the waves." When the last of Clara's humanity was no more. What remained latent within her of her new existence was fully awakened. This was why I was so relieved to see those two Batrachians come out of the sea and carry her beyond the shores with them. Although I cannot know for sure, I like to think the tall, deep one who hailed me from a distance was in fact the fully transformed Mr. Fig, himself whole and free of the wheelchair and heavy garments that made life bearable during the transformation, and that this Mr. Fig had returned for the young girl who had befriended him almost a century before. One final note on this matter. On the night before I returned to town, I was awakened with a start. I went to the window and saw hundreds of dancing lights out at sea. Standing on the cliff not a stone's throw from my window were two Batrachians, one tall, the other small and delicately built, now radiant with the resplendent health that is natural to the Deep Ones. They both hailed me with the universal sign, hand up and palm toward me. Their song on the night air was utterly enchanting, engulfing me in its sorcerous seductiveness. I knew in their kindness they were inviting for me to join them in a long moonlit swim far out beyond the reef. As intriguing as the offer might have been, at just this point in my life and work, however, I felt it best to decline.
1: Hello, kiddies! So, you want access to the Wicked Archives, do you? Well, it takes money to keep the lights on and keep our beasties fed. Trust me, you don't want them hungry. They might just start eating the writers and then where would we be? Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash wickedlibrary and pledge your support to the show. For $2 a month, I'll give you a key to our collection of classic episodes. For $5 a month, I'll let you hear the bonus stories before the rest of our listeners. Even more tantalizing rewards await for those who want to sacrifice more to us. Over 70 classic episodes are lurking deep in the private area of the library, just waiting to be heard by you. Pledge yourself to the library today, and you'll be ours forever! You're going to like it here, I think. <laughs> How much is it for people to enjoy the private area of the librarian, Dan?
0: 18 plus.